Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever wondered what an astronaut does in space? Uh, yes, they perform various scientific experiments while they're there on places like the International Space Station, but some of the things they do are pretty regular day-to-day -day stuff. For example, did you know that astronauts in space need to get about uh, two and a half hours of exercise every day, two and a half hours every day exercising. And why do they do that? Well, astronauts do this because if they don't, they'll experience uh, something called severe muscular uh, atrophy or atrophy. What is muscular atrophy? It's simply a, a loss of muscle mass. And if you spend time in zero gravity, this can happen very quickly. Now, the same thing happens on Earth, but at a much slower pace. And if you, if you don't use your muscles, then eventually you begin to lose them. Your, your strength just goes away because your muscles uh, decrease, your muscle mass. So if you want strong muscles, you need to strengthen them continually. And you know what? It's kind of the same thing when it comes to faith. Our faith needs continual strengthening. If it isn't, if we don't, we'll experience something we could call spiritual atrophy, a weakening of our faith. As we heard last week, God uses the preaching of the gospel to work faith in our hearts. And by God's grace, we believe in Jesus Christ. But that faith is always under attack every day. It's under attack from the devil who tries to insert doubts into our hearts. It's under attack from our old nature, as our old sinful heart seeks to overcome our new nature along with our faith. And it's under attack from the unbelieving world, which will discredit the truth of Christianity where it can. So all that means, as we go through uh, those attacks, it means that we need to continually strengthen our faith as we are easily weakened. But the good news is that God is the one who does this. And one way he does this is through the sacraments. That includes baptism. Now, earlier we read also from Lord's Day 7 about true faith. And we saw there that true faith includes two distinct things. It's first of all, a sure knowledge whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed in His Word, in the Bible. But it's also a firm confidence that the saving benefits of Christ are for me. What we want to see this afternoon is that baptism strengthens these two aspects of true faith within us. So that brings us to the sermon theme. God gave us baptism to strengthen true faith within us. And this includes, first of all, uh, this faith includes, first of all, believing the Bible is true, and secondly, believing Christ's saving work is for me. So again, Lord's Day 7 describes two aspects of true faith, and the first aspect is as follows, true faith is a sure knowledge, whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. Now, how does that acceptance, that God's Word is true, 
How does it come about? Well, by, it comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, we are convicted that the Bible is from God and that it is true. And the Spirit convicts us of this through reading, studying, and listening to God's Word. You know what? Article 5 of the Belgian Confession on the authority of, the Holy, of Holy Scripture, it puts it so well when it says, We believe without any doubt all things contained in the Scriptures, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they contain the evidence of this in themselves. For even the blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. Some of my catechism students explored this in the past year as we learned some apologetics. We believe the Bible is true because it shows itself to be from God and not from man. And that's self-evident. As you study the Bible, the levels of complexity in the Bible are astounding. They are far greater than any mere human could create. The books of the Bible were written over hundreds of years by different authors in different genres, yet every book of the Bible reveals to us the same God, and it all points us to one Savior, Jesus Christ, and it does it in marvelous ways over and over and over again. And added to this are prophecies made in Scripture thousands of years ago that are clearly being fulfilled today in the world. So it all points to the reality that the Bible is from God and that it is true. Now, having said that, all this does not mean that our faith is always perfect. At times, true believers may have doubts about the truth of God's Word. See, we all have areas of weakness in our faith, and this might be one of yours. However, to help us in this, God has added two more witnesses to the testimony of the Bible and what we have revealed in the Bible. He's added the witness of both baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. And the sacraments help to strengthen this area of our faith also, that the things revealed in the Bible are true. They add another layer of complexity which confirm that the things described in the Bible really happened. To understand how this works with something like baptism, I'm first going to start by looking at other examples of things God instituted. Think, for example, of creation. The Bible describes how God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2. And what's one thing that confirms the Bible's account of creation? Well, it's the institution of marriage. Genesis 2 describes how God created marriage when he made the world. 
And throughout history, marriage has continued on just as God instituted it, just as ascribed in Scripture. So every time we witness a man and a woman getting married, it's a testimony how God created the world as described in the Bible. It gives us further confirmation to our faith. We could say similar things about different events in modern history and and today, think about the end of World War I. According to what we read in history, World War I officially ended with the armistice assigned on November 11th, 1918 at 11 a.m. What is one thing that confirms to us that this event really and truly happened in history? Well, it's the commemoration of Remembrance Day every year on November 11th. Study history, and you will find that people have been observing Remembrance Day every year, stretching way back until the year 1919, the one-year anniversary of the end of World War II. So both what we read in history and the commemoration of that event agree. Now, it's the same kind of thing with the sacrament of baptism. Do a, if you were to do a historical study of the practice of baptism, even from a secular perspective, what will you discover if you do that? You will see that Christians have been practicing baptism in the name of the triune God right back in history to just before the time the New Testament books were written, around the year 30 AD or so. No one would dispute that. No secular historian could dispute that. And before that time, there is nothing. No baptisms in the name of the triune God. Baptism arose from somewhere. Yes, there were various ceremonial washings. Yes, John the Baptist practiced baptism. However, none of that was ever done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This baptism only popped up in history at the beginning of the New Testament church. And why is that important? Well, what is the explanation for the start of baptism in the name of the triune God? The only logical explanation is that it arose just as the Scriptures describe it. That at a certain moment in history... Jesus of Nazareth, who professed to be the Son of God, instituted baptism just like we read from Matthew 28. That he really and truly, on one particular day, did gather his disciples around him and commanded them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And ever since that time, baptisms in the name of the triune God have been taking place on earth. And every time we now practice baptism in this church, it's a testimony to the reality of that event that Jesus instituted baptism with his disciples present. It's a practice that stretches back in history to this very moment. So both the words we have in the Bible 
and the practice we have with baptism, they agree. It gives further confirmation to our faith. We could say similar things about the Lord's Supper. The practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper it stretches back in time to the very beginning of the New Testament church. You might ask, how did that arise? What's the only real logical explanation? It's that the Lord's Supper started just as the New Testament scriptures describe it. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread in front of his disciples and broke it. He poured out the wine into the cup, gave it to them, commanding them to do this in remembrance of him. So it's in this way the sacraments help to strengthen true faith within us. And that includes accepting as true what God has revealed in his word. You see, the sacraments are far too complicated for them to be simply made up by someone. See, maybe a skeptic would say, well, maybe these men, the apostles, were just trying to start a new religion. But no one trying to start a, a, a religion would do this. And that's especially true given the fact that these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, arose in a Jewish context. The apostles were Jews. And yet they began baptizing people instead of circumcising them. And they began celebrating the Lord's Supper and no longer the Passover. And no one wanting to start a new religion in this context would do this. Circumcision was at the very heart of Jewish identity. And Passover was the greatest feast day on the Jewish calendar. If these things, baptism, the Lord's Supper, were merely human inventions, the likelihood of this succeeding in the Jewish context is zero. That's like trying to convince Canadians to give up hockey as a national pastime and switch to lawn bowling instead. I tell you what, it's not going to work. You can't even play lawn bowling on ice. It's not that exciting. Beloved, these things arose, baptism, because our Lord Jesus Christ instituted them just as the Bible describes it. The Bible is true. The Bible is God's Word. We are convicted of that through reading the Bible alone, but God has given the sacraments to confirm and strengthen that conviction within us. That brings us to our second point. So baptism strengthens our faith that the things written in the Bible are true. But as we see from Lord's Day 7, there's more uh, to true faith than just that. There we read, True faith is at the same time a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So God gave baptism to also strengthen this part 
of true faith within us. And we need this. We need this all the time. You see, struggles in this area of faith can be quite common. And there are many pitfalls that can hinder our assurance of God's love and our salvation at this point. What are some of those pitfalls and struggles that we might have with this aspect of true faith? And we can can name any number of them. Again, Satan loves to insert doubts into our minds, into our hearts. Right? Can Christ really have died for, for you, he might say. We might begin to wonder, yeah, that's the point. Are my sins really forgiven? I can understand other people, but what about me and my life? Or maybe something like this. No, am I worthy enough to consider myself a believer? I sure don't seem to be a very good Christian. Seems too dangerous to count myself a true believer. Maybe too presumptuous. Or perhaps a struggle like this. How do I know I I really and truly have believed? Although I have a sense that I'm a true Christian, how can I be sure? Uh, What if I was only fooling myself? While I'm not trying to plant these doubts in any of your minds, I just want to describe what sometimes can happen in our minds and in our hearts. And this sort of thinking can easily lead lead down towards um, increasing the doubts in our hearts and mind. After all, look at how Lord's Day 7 defines true faith. It's a firm confidence that God has granted to me the saving work of Christ. Maybe we wonder, well, I don't seem to have a firm confidence at all. Does that mean I don't have true faith then? Maybe it means I'm not a child of God, and things can unravel pretty quickly at this point. So how do we unravel the the knots of doubt if we are struggling uh, with these things? Well, the first thing to understand is that our confession in Lord's Day 7 about true faith It defines faith in its essence. Faith is this firm confidence that Christ's saving work is for me because this is what God offers in Christ. The forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. These are His promises in Christ. Faith simply embraces those promises as one's own. And so, believing them means having certainty because God's promises are certain in Christ. See, God does not offer these promises with His fingers crossed. No, He's faithful to what He promises. And because God's promises in Christ are firm and sure, it also means that faith, by its definition, is firm and sure because faith embraces the sure promises of God in Christ. That's why various theologians have defined a faith throughout the, the years as a certainty. One was an important 17th century British theologian named John Rogers. He defined faith as follows. Faith is a particular persuasion of my heart that Christ Jesus is mine, 
and that I shall have life and salvation by his means, that whatsoever Christ did for the redemption of mankind, he did it for me. And John Calvin likewise defines faith as follows. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence or favor towards us, founded upon his promise in Christ. So that's the definition of what faith is. That being said, that does not mean this firm confidence is what we always experience as believers. Our experience is often like that man in Mark 9. Jesus told him, All things are possible to him who believes. And the man responded by saying, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That can be our experience too. Well, the good news is that this is also part of the normal Christian experience. Think only of what some of the authors of the Psalms confessed. Listen to Psalm 31, verse 22. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. Think of Job. This is what he said in Job 6. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Doesn't sound like a firm confidence that he's in a right relationship with the Lord. John Calvin also recognized that our experience of faith is far less than perfect. So he writes, In recognizing the grace of God towards believers or themselves, believers are not only tried by a disquieted heart, which often comes upon them, but they are repeatedly shaken by gravest terrors. For so violent are the temptations that trouble their minds that it seems incompatible with the certainty of faith. So that can be our experience as believers. What helps us to grow in the certainty of faith? Well, this is where baptism is so helpful. This is one reason why God gave us baptism. Look at what we confess in Lord's Day 26. Christ instituted this outward washing. And with it, gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is all my sins. We could also point to the next Lord's Day, question answer 73. God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign, that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. So in those words, we hear the promise of God in Christ. Christ's blood and spirit wash away all my sins. And we've received forgiveness of sins from God through Christ, or through grace because of Christ's blood. And we have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, members of Christ's body by the Spirit, so that we might become more and more dead to sin and lead a blameless life. 
Those are some of the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we claim these promises as our own, as applying to me personally. Look at how this is also described in Colossians 2. All throughout this passage, the focus is on Christ and on His saving work for believers. Listen to verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, built up in Him, and established in the faith. In other words, it's all about Christ fixing your faith on Him. Then there's verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. In other words, don't let anyone, no matter how smart they sound, don't let them make you move one muscle away from Christ Jesus and faith in Him for salvation. And there's verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in these words of verse 13, we hear what Lord's Day 26 describes as being washed with Christ's blood and spirit. God has forgiven us all our trespasses through the blood of the cross. He canceled our record of debt, nailing it to the cross. God also made us alive together with Christ, washing us with His Spirit. And by that, our nature is changed. We are renewed. And these are the things you have through faith in Jesus Christ. These are things that you have by believing in Christ the Savior. They are yours in Christ. A baptism is given to you to assure you of these beautiful truths, these beautiful promises. See, baptism gives us a picture of these saving benefits of Christ. And baptism is given to you who believe. And God proclaims to you through the sacrament these wonderful gifts of salvation. They are yours in Christ Jesus. They are yours personally. You have the forgiveness of your sins through Christ's blood washed away. You are renewed by the Spirit. Believe it. You have a new nature in Christ. Stand firm in it. And so you can now live a new life of thankful obedience to God. See, baptism is meant to strengthen our faith in these things, also by giving us a picture of Christ's saving work. Look at how this is confirmed in Colossians 2. Here it says, In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And in Christ also you are circumcised, the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
So there we see that what Christ did through his death and resurrection is pictured in baptism. It's as if God proclaims to you in baptism, Christ-saving benefits are brought forward to you in this moment. See this outward washing with, with water and believe more and more in your heart that these things are yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Strengthen your faith. Keep looking to God's promises in Christ, but also look to baptism. Feel that water on you. Believe also that Christ's blood has washed away the impurity of your soul, all of your sins, and that He has made you a member of Himself so that you might live for God. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together Psalm 86, stanzas 2, 4, and 6.